it's nice to be here. This is a good crowd. Uh, sometimes we speak to much smaller crowds than this, and uh, less anarchist-looking crowds. I, I like that I'm at an anarchist book fair, and the uh, the organization of this panel is based on sound anarchist principles. We don't know what the fuck we're doing, and we'll say whatever comes to mind. May we see your May we see your ID, please, first before. You so one question, I could just throw this out, uh, something I was thinking about on the car, in the car on the way up. Uh, can, can I imagine a future uh, where there's an anarchist society that, that functions, that works? I mean, sometimes you'll see future novels where there's an anarchist situation after, you know, a world war, everything has been destroyed, and then at least for a time, you know, there's the the futuristic punk type people picking over the ruins, and that's a pretty anarchist situation. And then there's the very idealistic novels, like Ursula Le Guin might write her book, uh, The Dispossessed, where it's an anarchist society that works, and but everybody's good. And it's always seemed to me, as a young, young person, I identified myself as an anarchist, and now I feel like when I see countries that fall into anarchy, it doesn't seem like it's very pleasant to live there. The, the fact is that so many people, you know, are, have various criminal instincts. So, how do you keep from people killing and robbing you? And how do you keep uh, gross polluters from, you know, doing... Grossly polluting. But grossly polluting. And, may, I mean, that's typically what we think the government is good for, but then the government does all these other things we don't like, so I don't know. Can we imagine a functioning anarchist society that's uh, the utopia that we all dream of? And John and Terry, you can answer that for me. <laughs> well, I'm saying, I'm gonna, um, I think uh, Rudy is confusing chaos and anarchy. Anarchy yeah. is a system. Uh, it's a way of people relating. It's not, uh, as I just in terms of, uh, we're so, in terms of talking about science fiction, which is a literature, which has a presence in the world, which has a history, which has a canon, uh, and it strikes me that uh, anarchy, and in particular, um, a sort of a, let's just say a more progressive future, has been examined in science fiction by several writers. Uh, recently, uh, March Piercy's, what's March Piercy's book, the... Um, the people know the one I'm talking about. It's a time travel book where this woman goes forward to an, an, an explicitly and um, well-described anarchist uh, and utopian future. Somebody help me out. This, it's a March Piercy book. It's quite... This is terrible. I should remember the title. A very good book about, and it's uh, written from sort of a, a feminist point of view, but I, there's no point in me going on about it if I can't remember the title of it. I think also Ursula Le Guin um, uh, writes about uh, a utopian and a, a, a non-capitalist, I would say, and a somewhat anarchist uh, future in the dispossessed. And I disagree with Rudy. I don't think she just writes about nice people. I think she actually tries to work it out a little bit. But she fudges, but everybody fudges. Uh, Pat Murphy, in, uh, who was going to be here with us today, wrote The City Not Long After, I think, which is a sort of an anarchist, a somewhat post-apocalyptic anarchist uh, future of San Francisco in particular. And it would, uh, people know this book. It's called The City Not Long After. So I think science fiction has had, uh, and I think H.G. Wells dealt a little bit with, if you want. Oh, I don't think we need, do we need this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry. I was talking about H.G. Wells, Mark Piercy, Ursula Grant, and Pat Murphy. And I wonder why all the uh, writers who have dealt successfully with uh, utopian progressive futures are women. Uh, Perhaps realistically, because they all came out of what you call the new wave in science fiction back in the back in the 60s and the 70s, when people were dealing with these issues. But I think also uh, women have had a little more um, um, of an impetus in terms. 
women had to break into science fiction just like they had to break into uh, the academy or break into politics. It, it happened at, somewhat simultaneously. It happened in science fiction uh, with Joanna Russ and, uh, um, you know, and Marge Christie and Ursula Gwynn. It happened in a, a fairly brief period of time and changed the, uh, changed the field. Women also have a, women also have a perhaps more or a, a greater tendency to be able to uh, imagine uh, cooperating without coercion. You know, it's, it, uh, without coercion. Without coercion. Can, and because that's because, well, yes, because uh, in anarchism, that is what you would have to have. You would have to have people who can cooperate without being coerced to do it. You know, um, and you see little, little, um, uh, microscopic or, or you know uh, versions of this in uh, various occupy efforts where they're they're or they're deciding uh, how to organize their protest and they're doing it in a very kind of almost a universal committee way everybody's part of the committee in a sense um, and uh, it's pretty it can be pretty chaotic from what I I've seen but at the same time um, it is this idea of cooperation without coercion. Um, but it's going to be, I think, in the future, um, I did a talk at TEDx uh, about over the next 50 years, about the next 50 years. Rudy did one there, too. And um, in the future, I think there will be... What the hell's TEDx? Well, TEDx is the... Um, uh, what's the acronym stand for in TED? Is it, it, it's Technology, te Entertainment, Design. And there's one official TED that's in LA, and then there's spin-off TEDx's in lots of cities around yeah, the world. Yeah, this was in Brussels. And everybody gives a, a short talk, and then they make a really nice video of it. It tends to be kind of futurologically oriented. And, yeah. And um, my, I was one of the people who wasn't all chirpy about the glories of the future and technology. and. and um, Downer. <laughs> I was the downer guy uh, to some extent because because I, I'm you know I really think that it's going to be a, a long slog before we get to um, a kind of uh, relatively harmonious civilization of any kind um, because of the crises that I think are coming. A lot of people think are coming: environmental crises, um, economic crises, and so on. But because of these crises. Um, and the, uh, the uh, social ferment that will result from it, they'll have all these pockets that will be relatively isolated. Uh, you know, as systems break down, and in those pockets around the world, people could uh, theoretically build um, model anarchist societies. Um, so the background of, of social chaos could provide an opportunity for these models of uh, these these uh, little model anarchist societies that might be, I mean, traditionally people envision them on an island, but it, and it could be, but it could also just be um, in some area of, of uh, some European city where there's been like a breakdown of central control, for example, in Amsterdam. I, when I, years ago, I visited Amsterdam, and they have, there's a whole community of squatters there in Amsterdam. At least there was then, it was like 20 years ago. And they were uh, occupying, in fact, um, buildings, a whole series of buildings in Amsterdam where people had just, you know, the buildings were not being used and so the people moved in and fixed them up and the local government just kind of allowed it. They even, I think, voted to allow it as long as the buildings were, dis were disused. They kind of had a high level of tolerance for it. So they were able to bring in, to wire in electricity borrowed from different places and they and uh, they had all these businesses there that were uncertified, that were unlicensed. You know, they had little say, cafes and shops of different kinds that were totally squat cafes and shops. Um, and it was and they all got along great. You know, um, as far as I observed, and it was another example of cooperation without coercion. Let me talk. And uh, oh, all right. <laughs> See, that's cooperation without coercion. He didn't have to threaten me to get the microphone. He was but he, would, but he I, I, would have if I hadn't given it to him. We've known each other for a long time. We're fellow cyberpunks from way back. Um, yeah, there's the dream of... Uh, well, Terry, actually, Terry's new book, uh, it's a 
a novel that's that's not being marketed as science fiction. It's called Any Day Now, and it's uh, part of the story involves some time that Terry spent living on communes in Arizona, and. Uh, there is this, this dream of the commune type life or the, the micro pocket of your neighborhood where, and you just want to say fuck your rules, I don't want to fill out any forms, I don't want to, I don't want to take any tests, I don't want to do that bullshit, I don't want to work, I don't want to go, if I work I want to just garden or write stuff, I don't want to go to a goddamn publisher, I just want to publish, I want to sell ebooks online, uh, which I've started doing now. It's, it's nice to say, well, I don't need the publisher. I can sell ebooks online. And instead of making 10000 for a book, I might make $800. So I still need some work. <laughs> but uh, there, there is this desire to walk away from it and turn your back on it. And uh, I think it's a noble dream. Uh, one, one element, I did have some anarchist elements in my novels, post-singular and hylozoic. And there's this idea for a responsive government. It would be, I mean, there's always this idea that the, the web has really, is one of the great anarchist things that happened. Uh, somehow the man didn't get hold of the web. The web is free. Anybody who wants to can publish anything they want. Anybody can go see it. It's universal communication channel, which is just, it's sort of unbelievable that <coughs> that the pigs let that slip through their fingers, you know? It just happened, it hatched, and before it was too late, you know? And, and now it's there, and they, they can't do anything about it that, that, that they could get away with. So that's, there's this idea that maybe, you know, maybe there's a certain element of salvation coming to us through the web and computers. And one dream, if it could work, would be that instead of, you know, a few horrible old rich people in Washington in this over-decorated room making all the decisions. If, if there is a some way to distribute, you know, to have this idea of instantaneous electronic democracy where uh, everybody could be involved and, you know, essentially be having an election, you know, 20 times a day about every little thing. And then, you know, the downside of that is I don't really want to spend all my time thinking about what society is doing. I hate listening to the TV news. To me, the news is the same thing as the ads. It's the same thing as the shows. They're all just this shock propaganda to make you afraid and, and, and feel helpless, and then you'll go out and buy shit so you'll feel better, you know? So I, I don't want to always think about the, the six stories that they think is important on the news. And there is, the web can, in a way, free us from that if it's not always this limited media channel of there's the six stories that you read about in the paper every day. You read about the Middle East, you read about oil, you read about um, Al-Qaeda, and it's always the same six stories. And, you know, they'll cycle one in and they'll cycle one out. They'll, they'll get a human interest thing. And, uh, but it's, it's bogus, it's bullshit. It has nothing to do with your real life. And uh, I'm very much into the idea of trying to live locally and being taking care of the people around you and your immediate environment. Uh, okay, so let's cycle it back to Terry. Uh, let's, does anybody have anything? We haven't hit on the topic here. <laughs> uh, perhaps somebody has something that... Uh, we did kind of want to open this up to make a discussion about... Well, I saw it as a discussion about what science fiction... I, I like to talk about the history of literature, but you know, clearly I've even forgotten the names of the authors. Plug your books, Terry. No. Any day now. <laughs> Any day now but shall be released. I, I was, what I was thinking, yeah, I, I did write a new book. It's called Any Day Now. It's an alternate history of the 60s, and it's about what if 1968 had turned out differently? What would the world look like today? Differently in what way? It might actually be pretty relevant. Uh, differently, just differently, you know, the, um, I don't know, what if, um, what if the U.S. had begun to um, disintegrate? You know, it looked like it was disintegrating. We just, we just came out of a panel on the Weather Underground SDS in the 60s, and everybody, uh, one of the questions people had, sort of unspoken, but somehow spoken, is what the fuck were you all thinking? You know, and um, 
people were thinking that it was all coming to pieces. That, mm -hmm. You know, that the world was heading towards not anarchism, but actual uh, socialism and uh, anti-racism and all this kind of stuff. It didn't happen. What if it had? So that's sort of what this book's about. Um, it's a form in science fiction called the alternate history, where you change a couple of hinges and then the door opens a little differently. Um, but I was, um, somebody asked me about this book. I was in New York and we were talking on some of these subjects. And they said, why write about something that happened 40 years ago, uh, 50, almost 50 years ago? What would a, uh, a utopian novel look like today if you were actually writing? And, and I've been thinking about it. And somebody said, why don't you write a novel about what if the Occupy movement worked? You know, what if, the, uh, what if it actually changed things in America? What would it look like in 20 years? What would America look like, say, if things went the way you wanted it to go, what would it look like in uh, 2044? You know, uh, what would be different and what would be the same? So I'm probably not the guy to write that book, but I kind of wanted, it's one of the things I wanted to open up. Like, would, uh, if you if you write a novel, say, about a young man from a small, this is about a uh, sort of, not based on me, but it's about a kid from middle America. Kentucky. In the 50s, yeah, and he goes to New York and becomes a hippie and that, all that kind of stuff. What would, what would that same young woman or man go through in, say, 20, that they were born in 2030 and in 2048, they decide to jump ship and get out of, uh, you know, uh, next exit Indiana and go see what's happening elsewhere in the world. Where would it be happening? What would be going on? What would be the constraints? What would families look like? You know, that's one of the things that Marge Piercy does so well in science fiction. Uh, and that we're supposed to be doing. I'm not engaged in it right now, but, um, but that was one of the things I wanted to ask people here. What, would he hitchhike? Would she catch a tra uh, bullet train? You know, how, how would the world, you know, like Rudy's saying, we, the world got unexpectedly transferred. The web, who knows? It's, uh, the military started it. It's all conducted on these, or used to be on these private phone lines, and yet it's the only unpoliced territory in the U.S. Still, temporarily, I think. I, I'm, I'm worried about it, but I don't know. Do people here read science fiction? Let John say something. In one of my short stories, uh, it's incorporated into this book, um, my cyberpunk trilogy, the new omnibus. Um, there's a a guy finds himself in um, uh, a prison, a, a jail cell, you know, with a group of odd people, and um, the jailer is a robot, and they're, you know, and it's the place is mostly uh, uh, automated. And these guys are all, um, this is a very cyberpunk thing. I wrote it like 18, 20 years ago before there was the internet, before um, Anonymous was around. And it has that flavor. One of the guys is there for having um, put uh, uh, electronic graffiti out on, um, on the television where he, he makes words float across news things, you know. Um, there have been efforts to do things like this lately, uh, a few. Um, and uh, so this electronic graffiti concept, the digital graffiti over that we superimpose some kind of radical statement over the regular media. That's a great idea. And it's in, well, it's in here. Um, and um, it's kind of like anonymous. What they, some of the stuff they do is kind of the same flavor, but it's I have it uh, taken another step. And so this this guy's in jail for that. And then these with it, this other people who are some of them are just kind of street people, and but they all have one thing in common. They have this chip that's um, that street people have at the time, and it's just it's a kind of a street chip. It's like it's the technology's uses of the street has its tech, has its uses for technology. Is that the expression? You know the one I mean. And um, so they've they've got they've all got this chip that connects them to what is called the plateau, which was my envisioning of the internet, except it didn't exist then. 
uh, and the and it was uh, sort of like cyberspace, um, but the plateau was um, sort of an you know highly illegal form of cyberspace. All these pe- and all these guys have their little chips hidden, and they haven't been found by their jailers because that's kind of another process that comes later where they do some kind of surgical probe or something. So then they, they, one of them has a program that allows them to link up all their chips and use it to take over the robot, to uh, hack into that robot, to open the jail cell to get them out. And so then, but in the process, it, there is a kind of telepathic feedback that happens where they see into each other's minds, they can't help it because this chip is interfacing with their brains. And so they see much more than they want to see about each other. There's this kind of you know, eruption of, of uh, mutuality and psychological exchange between them. And so all this, you know, this, in this kind of powerful wave of honesty that comes from this, these interacting interlinked chips, uh, people are able to cooperate um, you know, in an anarchistic sense of cooperation. Uh, in a way they wouldn't have been able to otherwise because they're totally different. Like one was basically a, you know, a, a burglar and, a, and another guy was a member of a gang and so on. And all these different people from different parts of, of society and, and uh, oppressed classes kind of find this unity after they also see the kind of dark sides of themselves. So they just they have nothing to hide anymore. And because they don't have anything to hide, they're able to cooperate and escape from the the machine, literally from the machine. And obviously it's a metaphor. You know, obviously the story was a metaphor. It's going to be in the new um, cyberspace anthology that we're both in, cyberpunk anthology we're both in, that's um, coming out from uh, Underland Press. Yeah. Rudy and I are in that. Um, I think it's just called Cyberpunk, isn't it? The Cyber Elders, I think it's called. Really? <laughs> that would be depressing. That would be very depressing. How about... How about Eternally youthful cyberpunks. That's what it should be called. I think. But uh, oh, anyway, it's in it's in that it's in this book. But it's, the point is, is that it's a metaphor, and and, it's, and and it does show something that I think will happen. I don't know if it's quite this literally, but it will happen. People will use uh, electronic media even more in the future in order to facilitate radical ends in a more and more creative ways. So that's probably what I've been trying to say for the last ten minutes here. Okay, let me have that. Huh. That's good, John. Uh, that's something I think about a lot too. Is uh, electronic telepathy? Uh, I think I never, that we, I, I never see your thoughts on that. <laughs> you can't. I must need a new Earl for you. <laughs> I, I wrote about that a lot in uh, Post Singular and Hylozoic, and uh, that's the sort of. I figure that's going to be the next medium. I like to try to think ahead a little bit. I mean, in our lives, you know, there weren't computers when we started out, you know, and now you've got the, there used to be the science fiction dream of the world encyclopedia that could answer every question, and, you know, we've got that. We've got Google, we've got Wikipedia. And then there was the dream of the, the video phone, and so you've got that, you've got FaceTime or some other version of that. And one, uh, the interfaces with cell phones and smartphones, that's going to be a very, very transitory interface. There's only so long that people are going to want to push those little buttons. That's, that's not going to last. And, uh, well, the, the voice recognition will get a lot better. That started, okay, with Siri. But uh, I think probably the thing that would be, they're sort of edging up to it, but they haven't quite you know, had the nerve to sort of push it. Is going to be the thing where you have uh, this little thing on the back of your neck. I call it an UVI, U-V-V-Y, because it sounds cozy. It's made of plastic, and we can put circuits into plastic now. So uh, one thing, computers have to get soft. You don't want them to be hard. Mm -hmm. they got to be soft like we are. So there'll be this soft little slug, an UVI, and you put it on the back of your neck. And I don't think we want hair-thin probes sinking into the spinal cord. That's, that's a hard sell. People, so, but it's going to just have really good electromagnetic sensors. So probably not the hair-thin probes. We've got a comment. Please. Oh, 
maybe I'll finish it and then I'll, I'll ask you to say something. How about let's do that? Okay. And the, the telepathy thing, uh, one thing, I see that happening. At present, when you want to send somebody information, uh, you can send them a uh, you can send them a file, or instead you just send them a link to where the information lives. And if you have telepathy, you could do that. When I explain something to somebody, I'm giving this basically showing them this source code, this set of words, and then they try to build the same thought in their head. And it would be nice if I could just send you a, a telepathic link to the thought in my own head, and then you could just experience that thought directly. Uh, there's going to be some downsides with telepathy. You know, you want to worry about mind control and advertising. Uh, you don't want to be getting spam ads while you're dreaming. Spam yeah. dreams. I had spam Product dreams. placement. Like spam yeah. dreams. I had an intense dream about about uh, Nissan cars last night. Yeah. <laughs> a guy jumping in the air because he saved a nickel. Yeah. <laughs> what a feeling. Uh, but uh, anyway, but let's go. What, what was this show what we're going to ask you here? Go ahead. Um, Stand up and shout so we can Yeah, no, I want everybody to be able to hear. Um, <laughs> so, you mentioned this idea, we're still talking about telepathy, and you mentioned this idea of um, technology enabling us to be more honest as like a side effect. Um, and I think that's very interesting. Um, I think it's also interesting that in that situation, you're like eliminating people's ability to have consent to share these things about themselves, which I think is a very like human thing, like essential to life and privacy, like the way that our world is now. Like it could be good or bad if that kind of like ability to censor ourselves and present a certain image socially was like eliminated. Um, you're also talking about like not being able to consent to people having like the ability and resources to send you like spam advertising into your brain. That's up. Yep. Um, so I just had this question like um, the intersection of like science fiction and um, like I guess the like social implications of like this imaginary world where you get to create these situations totally obvious, but I was wondering if um, you ever like go through a long thought process of like an imaginary situation and world, and then you come to this conclusion of like, why don't people just change their behavior? Like, why don't we just challenge ourselves to be more honest and to come to terms with like the dark parts of ourselves and to hold a social standard where we are more honest with each other? Um, I wanted to know your thoughts on that. Like, do you think that humans have the capability to just like examine themselves further and further to create a, a better world, or do you think that we need this like, like kind of pathway of technology? Oh, do we need a tech fix, or can people actually start being better? I think that's a huge question. Yeah, no, people will never start being better. <laughs> people are never going to change. Well, but Terry has more to say. <laughs> I don't have an answer to that. I do think, I, I mean, we're talking about, it's funny, I was thinking that one of the first things you learn as an infant is the, the difference between you and the rest of the world. It's like you're, there's, oh, I'm, in, I'm inside this body, you know. I think you're probably eight months old or something. And it does seem like one of the things they're talking about with uh, uh, data mining and stuff is that that's beginning to break down. You're losing not only your privacy, but in many ways your individuality, and, and uh, uh, that's really what this is about. It's about the technology. I, I'm glad that John brought that up because that's what science fiction is. It pretends or purports and and attempts at times to look at the future. What does technology? How's it going to change things? And um, and that's kind of what we do. There's a thing in science fiction called the uh, singularity. Have people heard of this? It's an idea of this guy named Kurzweil and then a colleague of ours, what's his name, Werner Vinge. Uh, uh, Bruce Sterling talks about it, uh, where society, uh, you know, things are changing so fast, exponentially fast, that all of a sudden 
the world, we're going to wake up one day and the world's going to be unfucking recognizable. It's just like, it's going to be so different that we can't live in it. And um, um, I think that's part of what you guys are talking about. I mean, it's where you're, you're no longer separate. Uh, to me, I would say, and then I'll surrender this, I, I didn't agree with the singularity. I feel like the singularity happened about 75 years ago. And our parents, my parents, my mother, um, you know, went to, uh, my mother was born, there was, uh, there was, there were cars, but they, they were curiosities, you know, the, to go to town was a, was a big deal. There was no telephones, there was no radio, there was no, uh, you couldn't remember music, you know, people made music, but they, they couldn't play Elvis Presley or Caruso, they had to, uh, so to me that was the singularity which happened in the, the early part of the 20th century, but, yeah. Uh, so, Shirley, you mentioned uh, Anonymous, and if you look at Anonymous, they wear masks that were taken from Alan Moore's Beat for Vendetta. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm thinking, Not my question to you is, uh, have you guys uh, experienced anarchists using your ideas in a very uh, salient way? Basically, what an anarchist one of science fiction writers, right? Uh, because a lot of the inspiration that they take is, is from your work, especially cyberpunk stuff. I sometimes get letters from people who say they found the song called your books politically uh, inspiring. But I don't know what they've done about it. Not from jail. In one case, from jail. In one case, from jail. And the guy was in jail for having something to do with um, animal rights, uh, animal rights action. In fact, um, we have been doing a very, you know, radical animal rights action. Um, David Agronoff, who's a well-known kind of underground uh, novelist. Okay. And so there's one. Um, you know, I, he is, his general thrust is sort of anarcho-syndicalist or something. But, um, you know, Ursula Le Guin, The Dispossessed, you, that you mentioned, um, that book has influenced people's thinking. A lot of people have, have you know, like, try, had, like, workshops reading it and then discussing, well, would this be what it's like, you know, to have a society like this? Would it have these problems? And, you know, I think that's an example of science fiction and probably Marge Piercy, too, influencing people out, out in the field. Because science fiction is like a computer model, in a way, of the future. And except the computer model happens to be, you know, actually, you know, in the form of words and prose and so on, or movies sometimes. In my story, relative to what she was saying, my story, the people who were you know, sharing this stuff and kind of having this radical honesty in order to get to the point where they could work together and merge all their chip uh, power enough to get out of prison, they were kind of making a sacrifice to do it. But they, they knew that it was going to suck, that, you know, that they had to, not getting out of prison was going to suck, that, that sharing their minds with one another in this, in this uh, radical way, in this extreme way, it was going to be you know, embarrassing, and I put in the embarrassing parts in the story, and and dangerous, and so on. Uh, they, you know, they knew that, and they risked it in order to um, to get out of prison. So, you know, th that's kind of like what people will make the choice sometimes for a more radical honesty with each other in order to in order to uh, to get somewhere together. And so, it's the risk they take. That's that's kind of how I would answer that. And, that one of my theses has been that we have to ma we have to manage technology. We have to command technology and not let it command us. And we are we're in danger of it being, you know, overwhelmingly part of our lives to the extent where we lose power and and freedom to something that's supposed to empower us and free us. You know, there there are people who are wisely, I think, now um, have, uh, arranging for their children to have tech. Uh, Technology breaks or technology vacations. They go to they go to special camps are created where you are told you are not going to have your cell phone or or smartphone or any computer. And it's like they have to to put it frame it that way for these kids to understand that to say, now let me get this right. You know, it's like to them, like to my son, my youngest son. That would be like saying, yes, you are going to be leaving one of your legs at home. <laughs> no, I mean, it's almost like that to him. And, but, it, I, but it's just a little temporary thing, and then they get over the, the trauma of it. I mean, some of them really freak out. And, uh, and then they find out that it's really a good thing, but it's a vacation from it. It's not giving it up. 
She's not being a Luddite. It's just it's putting it back in balance. And the other thing is taking command of it for, you know, the purposes of, of the people rather than, you know, the big corporations. If I may? Yeah. I might be branded as a Luddite, but when I look at, we at science fiction, it kind of really fetishizes technology. But I, I see technology as, like, really damaging to our planet. Like, we're, you know, we're engaged in a war in Afghanistan to control rare earth metals. We're going to strip mine a... Uh, you know, a millions-year-old salt flats in Bolivia to, to extract some minuscule amounts of lithium. And, you know, like, where, where, where do we stop? You know, when do we realize that technology, like, we have to balance all these social needs, you know, social, like, it's true. Uh, you know, damages that we, we can inflict upon ourselves, but also the very real damages that we're inflicting to our planet to, to control these, you know, resources. And, and then, like, how we dispose of these resources are also damaging to our planet. And, and vast amounts of energy that need to be produced to maintain our our uh, our technology is also damaging to our planet. So like when when do we say like okay technology Okay that's that's a good point. Uh, one thing to keep in mind uh, science fiction is a, a very broad field and there's all sorts of aspects to it. And if if you've seen some science fiction movies that's not necessarily what John and Terry and I are writing about. Uh, generally, I don't really fetishize technology and, and think of it as an unalloyed good thing. Uh, and uh, it is disturbing, yeah, the business, what they're doing to try to, to get this. Uh, uh, one thing I feel like I didn't really do justice to your question uh, about whether we could change the nature of, of humans rather than hoping for uh, some kind of technological implant to improve their behavior. And uh, well, people, and I, I said rather shortly that people are not going to get better. And uh, but that is something I think perhaps when I, perhaps when I, you're younger, you're maybe more optimistic. And now I'm the bitter old man. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, people, I have not observed them getting better during the, the 60 years I've been here watching. And when I do historical research, there's always, you know, people being complete assholes and <laughs> ripping each other off, and I, I don't see that ever stopping. So, so but, how, but, do, how yeah. do we work around that? I guess that's the question. Uh, and can tech help us? There, uh, there is a trend, though. Uh, you know, there are. I mean, we have women's rights now uh, a variable around the world, even in this country. But compared to a hundred years ago, you know. I mean, I think there's a general trend toward human rights. That's true. You know, there's a general trend toward uh, democratization of different kinds. You know, right. there's, there's, and it's just, it's uneven, and there's corporatization, and there's, there's all this stuff working against it. But the general trend is sort of the fact that there right. could be an anarchist book fair right here. Probably a hundred years ago, if there was, this would have, the police would be sweeping through here. Anarchists were arrested a hundred years ago in the United States. Um, and so there, there is some, there are th things like that. There are things, there are things like that to be optimistic about. But what, one thing I wanted to say was that was that um, uh, I'm optimistic because everything will be terrible, and that that was the theme of my TEDx talk. I'm optimistic because we're going to have a series of crises, the kind that a lot of them ecologically based, and we're going to learn from them because we'll have to, like. Recently, it was announced that we only have five years to get control of global warming. It's not going to happen. We're not going to do it. You know, we're going to fail because there are too many forces arrayed against us. So that means we're going to have all the consequences of global warming, which will mean huge population centers being moved around and, and a, a vast increase of, of refugees. And, it'll be uh, a seething answer. Uh, yeah, it'll be a mess. You I, know? I see and, a lot more questions out there. Yeah, let's, we're running towards So let's, let's go ahead and just do questions. This guy in the front row here, what do you got? Um, I was curious what you guys thought about questions about authorship and the science fiction of the future maybe not having this you know, author authority figure, um, though I have great respect for the authors. Oh, we're authority figures. Um, so <laughs> that maybe the emergent culture of viral sharing and sort of YouTube type stuff and fan fiction that's kind of collaboratively created and maybe doesn't have a centered authorial voice. Well, I'm into the sharing thing. I mean, I've, I've released 
I've released a couple of my books uh, as Creative Commons books. You can get my, my big book, The Ware Tetralogy. And then I've also, I edited a free webzine called Flurb, flurb.net. We had that, that guy Agaranoff had a story on there. And that, that comes out twice a year. And that's sort of a sharing thing in that I, you know, strangers send me stories and then I, I format them and put them together and I don't pay them and, and nobody makes any money. It's the anarchist ideal. We've all been in that, actually, yeah. though. The all, other three of us have been. And yeah, it's, it's Bruce Sterling has had things in it. It's a great scene. Flirt.net. Yeah, yeah, but the author's name is always on the story. Yeah, that's author, true. Yeah. That's but true. fan fiction, that's sort of, for us, for pros, that's sort of not a place that we want to go. But there's no, but there's nothing to stop. There's, <laughs> there's nothing no, to stop you from doing there's it. There's nothing to stop you from doing it and, and, and offering that as an alternative and to publish yeah. uh, communally in that way. There's no, there's nothing, and, then, and in fact, now that e-publishing is like opening so many things up, that's an even greater opportunity e for E-publishing is huge. It's we had a huge. question. Uh, the guy in the very back row there? Uh, Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. That's going to be based in chemical, reading chemical signatures. Well, it might be reading electromagnetic signals, or maybe there's a type of wave that we haven't discovered yet. Well, th so so you're going to be taking this this um, this analog thing, creating it, uh, transforming it into something digital, and then transmitting it to someone else, and which will be then taking it back into analog. So because it, but the thing, it's maybe the device. To Well, it's one thing we can, might get away from digital. Once we get start using these more biological, biochemical computers, they might not be digital anymore. So they might be analog. So it might be like it resonates. A language is a funny thing where it's it's this toolkit where you're you're building a model of what's in somebody's head just from this arbitrary system of grunts and squeals that, that you hear. It's, it's very odd. The thing is, there'll be an e interface that translates. Right, that'll take that and that'll put it in symbols that you can that you can read, and it can be wrong sometimes. So if there you don't have symbols, if you have a cheap system, you could end up getting the wrong mind read. I read in your mind you're going to kill me. That's no, that's not what story, I. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Somebody had their hand raised, and I can't read it. Back. Um, the, the lady here. Go ahead. elite and they're not going to be that affected by these crises because they have control of the resources and um, and they and the danger is that that they are going to also have control of one of the most important resources which is um, education um, and and the uh, capability of learning about how to use these different um, de you know electronic uh, devices and computers and to a large extent I mean there's there's a sort of universality of it, but not really, and it's going to get more and more complex, and some people are going to be a sort of, and also people with money are going to have more technology, or, at, you know, people with other resources that are the equivalent of money, and they're going to, they're going to tend to 
agglomerate it to themselves. And those people are going to be very eccentric people, and a lot of their time is going to be spent in virtual reality where they're, you know, living their little fantasies and stuff. And it's, it's going to be, they're going to be a real problematic area of, of society, and, um, uh, and people, be, and I really think they'll be quite oppressive, and the only way around that is for other people to educate themselves and use technology uh, you know, to reach out to people, for example, in the third world and different kinds of dis unempowered people. There have been efforts to get uh, la laptops and education about how to use them to people in rural India, for example. I mean, there have, there have, been, there have been programs, um, Walter uh, from, um, Walter de Brouwer uh, had a program where he did that, and he, when he, he distributed hundreds and hundreds, I think actually thousands of laptops around, and I don't know how many were really used, but that the idea is to get those people empowered so that you counterbalance those other people. And that unless you do it, then uh, we're going to be all at a grotesque disadvantage. Kind of the opposite of a tech break. So it's actually good. Um, yes, please. With that, there is what you're saying about like, empowering indigenous people. I think it's also going to be about learning from those people. Ooh. Like if there's a You don't know the technologies that sustain life. Like a lot of people don't know how to make fire or make shelter mm -hmm. or gather food. And it's like, those are the things we're going to need. You know, those are the things when these things collapse that we're going to have to like, learn together. So That's I true. A lot of re reconnecting with indigenous communities and being like, okay, we fucked up. You know, our ancestors fucked up. Like, yeah. They may be educating us more than we're educating them in yeah. some ways. Uh, that's probably about true. technology, but it's just like older technology. Right, right. I, yeah, it's true. Yeah, somebody over here. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. A quick comment about never getting better. Uh, people act just the way that they're acculturated and the way that their psychology sort of drives them to be. I personally don't need a cop in here to prevent me. So that's sort of like in an individual case, but I think cultures do vary, and like you were saying about uh, women's rights improving by and large, for example, and other things like that. Um, oh, and I, I had a quick comment about, um, uh, just inspired by the question, what might a utopian vision look like? There's a lot of things I can say about that, but there's one that I'm really excited about, which is that given the fact that uh, our unsustainable modes of uh, energy production, among everything else, are unsustainable. Unsustainable means it's gonna stop at some point. It's gonna break. It's breaking now. That's what we're seeing. That's what our, our wars are about, etc., etc., etc. So, if we do continue to have a civilization, it's gonna have something to do with some sustainable method of energy production. And the exciting thing for me is that. Sustainable energy production is inherently distributed. It's inherently local. Everything that at least that we know of now, the exciting thing for me is the political implications of that. You don't need a state to be investing in things like nuclear plants and coal mines and uh, foreign wars. If you can do it yourself, you kind of need a state less. Hmm. The, the energy thing is a big deal. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's odd when you see the figure that the U.S. exports more oil than it imports. That's kind of weird. Uh, You've got some of your lips. Okay. Yes. Um, oh, I, I, am, I am young and I have no either. I'm very bitter, also. Right. Um, but that's <laughs> why I'm there because I don't think that there's any, there's no, there's no plateau of um, utopia. But that being said, I really appreciate um, your work, Terry, in imagining um, if counter-revolutions didn't happen, and Fire um, Mountain is a really okay. incredible book. And I also wanted to give a shout out to a, a comrade in Chicago, um, Jeremy Hammond, who's facing 30 years in federal prison for hacking a private CIA CIA. Oh, right, yeah. So if you wanted to talk about donating books to mail to him, or to his <laughs> Cool. Okay, sure. sure. We can send I'll send him books.
We've only got five minutes. We can take two questions, but it has to be an intelligent question <laughs> or comment. Please. Yes. I'm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, you. Uh, okay. Back. So we are facing these like ecological collapses, and so obviously we have a lot of work to do. And so I'm imagining like little kids in the 70s are in front of their TVs and they're seeing the rocket ship blast off. They're like badass, and they're like, I'm gonna do science. I'm gonna be an astronaut. Like I'm gonna make technology like accomplish these goals. We're gonna reach far like greater lengths than we ever imagined. And so nowadays I think of kids who are like watching their TV and they see like UFC fighters and they're like like beating the crap out of each other. And I was wondering if maybe you had any um, you experienced seeing any things lately that would be really inspiring to younger people who are going to be having to solve these problems that would make them want to come to meet these challenges like that, you know, rocket liftoff or something like that. Well, I'm excited about self-publishing e-books. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's going to be a big thing. It's empowering. Science fiction. Actually, there's a uh, there's a young writer named Paolo Bacigalupi who I'm a big fan of, who writes a lot about uh, global warming and all like that. I mean, science fiction is dealing with it. We've come a little slow to it, but we're dealing with it. Um, but the rocket ships, you know, we thought that um, they would change everything. They did. <laughs> What's Paolo? What? Bacigalupi. You can't spell? <laughs> C-A-C-I-G-A-L anyway. Just give him the name of this book. <laughs> what's the name of the book? Shipbreaker. Uh, what's he doing? I don't know. Anyway, he said, Google him up. Baji Galupi. The wind-up girl. The wind-up girl. Wind-up girl. Yeah, he's, he's a cool dude. Uh, just writing uh, very ecologically uh, interesting stuff. Science fiction comes is late dealing with this. So. Well, not really. Not oh, there were lots of eco-disaster novels in the 70s. Yeah, that's true. That was a whole genre. Hey, listen, thank you all for um, paying attention to us.